0: Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Adipod, the Australian Taxpayers Alliance podcast. I'm Emilio Garcia. For the very first episode of the podcast, we sat down at the ATA offices to have a chat about the organization, what the organization's about, what they do, and who they do and don't get funding from. Without further ado, please enjoy episode one of Adipod. So I'm here at the ATA offices with uh, various team members. Uh, I won't take the time to go around and introduce them right now. Just as you make your first point, please introduce yourselves. So this is the first podcast for the ATA. So I'd like to know, what is it? What is the ATA? Yeah, okay. I mean, I feel
1: like I'm in an, an Alcoholics Anonymous thing. It's like, <laughs> hi, I'm Brian I'm from the ATA. Uh, yeah, I'm Brian, I'm the Executive Director of the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. Uh, look essentially the Australian Taxpayers Alliance or ATA uh, is an advocacy organization that represents people who pay tax so if you're a business owner uh, if you're even just you know an employee uh, we all pitch in to fund all these government programs but most of those government programs are wasteful and waste our money uh, and all we do is support governments that intrude in our daily lives and I don't think that that's okay and we have
0: a significant member base that agree with us. So this is for people that are satisfied with the amount of tax that they're paying and have and and want to change nothing about it, correct? Is that...
1: Absolutely no. No, this is for people that feel like they pay too much uh, and feel like they don't get enough out of the government for what they're, you know, for, for the amount of money that's being stripped away from them. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at, if you're a business owner and you're relatively successful, more than 40% of your income's going to the government. If you're if you're a worker an employee and you're relatively successful, about forty percent of your income is going to the government. And what are you getting out of that? I, I don't see any tangible benefits at that kind of tax rate. Uh, and separate to that, you know, we have an overburdensome government that tells you how you can live your life, uh, what you can do with your own property, what you can do with your own business. Uh, you know, they'll shut you down if. A random customer acts poorly, like we've seen with lockout laws in in Sydney that have destroyed the nightlife. Uh, Those are the sort of things we try and campaign against.
2: We like to think that we live in a meritocracy. uh, And to a large degree, we do, compared to a bunch of other countries where you need to really shake the government's hand or give them something behind the scenes to get ahead. But, But even in our great country that we have, we have special interests, we have lobbyists, we have this proverbial swamp in our national capitals, even in the Western world and you know these guys are generally very good at influencing policy by spending tons of money to get special carve outs and special favors from the powers that be uh and we thought it was important that someone's out there doing it for the average joe bob on the street who's trying to get ahead and support his family have lower energy bills and power bills uh, which is why you know we don't just stop at making your tax bill go down and making sure the government spends your money well we'd also like to see you pay less for your electricity and just have a better living standard at the end of the day. Great. And I have a question for you, too.
0: What's your name and what do you do?
2: So I'm Satya. I'm the director of policy here at the ATA.
0: So you so basically, you're advocating for the rights of people to keep the money that they earn. If they're smart enough to earn it, they're certainly smart enough to spend it how they see fit. Um, but that's not all you do. You're you're definitely trying to, to liberalize other parts of the market. So do, do you want to tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I think we have a bit of a corny joke inside the office, which is like, you know, we're not a think tank we're a do tank, which is really, you know, it, it, it's 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 a corny line. But essentially what that means is we don't just write big, over-bloated 80-page policy reports. that goes nowhere. <laughs> uh, we meet with politicians. We do a lot of government relations work. We do a lot of advocacy work and on-the-ground work. Uh, an example of that would be our legalized vaping campaign, uh, which in and of itself has close to 30,000 supporters. Uh, that's something that started as a little online petition, then morphed into what it is today. And the only reason for that is because we got out on the street and we got out campaigning and we actually got in people's faces. And that led us to get into the media, it got us meetings with politicians, it got us more successes, which got us more media and more support. Uh, And I think it's a good example of anyone can sit down and write a very detailed report and a very long, you know, policy piece, and they're very important uh, and, and they do inform a lot of the things that you campaign around, but it can't just stop there. So, you know, a policy paper is very important and it helps you, uh, inform the issue that you're trying to communicate to the general public and to politicians and to the media, but you actually need to get out there and you actually need to campaign. You need to get out on the street. You need to sign people up. You need to get people behind your cause and you need to get politicians involved. You can't do that if you're just sitting in an office writing reports all day. Uh, so that's, sort of our point of difference, is that, you know, we have a really good policy director, but he also gets out in campaigns. Mm. Uh, You know, we have a great research associate, but she's also been out and campaigned on the street, Um, you know, which goes back to not a think tank, also a do tank.
2: Yeah, it's not enough to, I mean, look, a policy paper can let you know that having a tax cut will deliver economic benefits by adding this much money to your GDP and this much to your productivity. Uh, but that isn't enough to make change happen in this world we live in. You have to get into the public conversation and let people know how it benefits them on the street, more money in their pockets. That means the ability to keep more of what you earn, to send your kid to a private school or any school of their choice, uh, the ability to have social mobility, so you're making more money than your parents or your grandparents did, um, You know, having less congested roads because there's now more money that the government has to spend on transport and infrastructure because your GST payments are now split a lot more evenly. Um, and and that really that sort of thing. So we're in the conversation at all levels. We meet directly with politicians, we engage the media with our reports and our op eds. We're out there on the radio speaking directly to the trade on his, who's on his way to work. Uh, and even when people don't necessarily completely agree with our point of view, we give them something to really think about and that it itself adds immense value to our to the debate.
1: Yeah, I think just as an example of a point of difference with our vaping campaign, uh, we had the idea to have a campaign bus and go up and down the east coast of Australia, going to different towns, specifically towns that are affected by poor uh, policies around uh, smoking, mm. uh, where you have working class and regional areas that have huge smoking rates and vaping an alternative. Uh, we lived in a bus together and ate ham sandwiches. Now, I don't know many other policy wonks that are willing to do that I don't either (laughs) they're willing to put their name to an op-ed that might have been written by someone else uh you know they're willing to do those sorts of things but are they willing to actually
0: front up and you know put in that kind of work? I don't think so. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point you make, because yes, you have the think tanks, and obviously, a lot of things in theory are fantastic. And it makes you certainly sound very intelligent to kind of be on the front line of, of policy. But it's very different to actually implement things, you have to deal with a lot of people who are going to oppose you, you're going to have to deal with cultural issues. So what would you say is, is the main difference between just kind of putting out your points of view? and what you want to achieve uh, kind of in, in, in opinion form and the difficulties that come from actually advocating to get it done. So
1: I, I think to answer that, I'll probably give some examples. Um, you know, there are other think tanks out there that are doing a great job. Center for Independent Studies, for instance, does fantastic jobs when, when they hold their events to try and you know articulate their detailed reports to the general public. Uh, if you ever get an invite to a CIS event, go. Uh, they're actually pretty interesting. Uh, the IPA down in Melbourne, Same thing. They're running Generation Liberty, which is like a youth-based movement to get people involved uh, and get them to understand the ideals of reducing the size of government. They're doing a great job. Yeah, yeah. And but they're doing a great job, right? Because they're doing what we're talking about, which is okay. Policy pieces are important. Op-eds are important. Getting your name in the paper is important. But so is getting out there and getting people involved. Mm. Uh, And but you get other think tanks that just don't do any of that kind of stuff, and then they sit back and wonder why
0: Mm. no one's listening to them um so it's not only us but i think that's an example so that's fantastic and now i want to talk a little bit about uh your funding which uh, (laughs) is a a quote-unquote dark money according to apparent apparent walkley award-winning journalists yes yes and uh so so you are funded in large part by the Koch brothers am i correct uh
1: if by funded you mean we don't receive a single dollar then sure (laughs) um i would love i i would personally love to receive Uh, A a donation from from the Koch brothers they support some fantastic initiatives all around the world Mm. Um, unfortunately they don't they don't donate to us so you'd be Um, happy to but there is in
2: in the words of uh, Tyrion Lannister I wish we were the monster you think we are because we'd be able to do so much more Uh, so the bulk of our funding comes from our you know 75,000 member base and we often turn to them to uh, fundraise for individual campaigns uh, you know, we get some sponsorship for our conference as well every year, which is great. Um, but look, at the end of the day, this funding question always comes up. And obviously, you know, we're happy to answer it um, as anyone should be. Uh, but it is it is quite curious that the moment we, we advocate for an issue because it's in the interest of our members, there's always some cynic who comes out saying, oh, I wonder what special interest is behind this. Well, what's interesting is most of the time we oppose government waste and horrible policies that hold back freedom of choice which are often pushed by bureaucrats or special interests who want a special favor from the government, often funded by our taxes. So that special interest needs to be acknowledged as well, because that is a problem.
3: Yeah, and we're very much a lobbying group, or not a lobbying group, an advocacy group. Mm. Um, and who are
0: you, just really quick?
3: Oh, yes, sorry. I'm Emily Die, <laughs> and I am the research associate. Great. So we're not a lobbying group, mm. which is when someone pays a group in order to lobby for their views. We're an advocacy group, meaning... Mm. We have these ideals that we're trying to present to the public. And there are people that agree with us, the taxpayers, <laughs> who then donate to our cause.
0: That's fantastic. And so for a little context, the reason that we brought up the Kochs at all mm. is because there's a journalist who decided to, on a, and a reputable, maybe <laughs> for, uh, for not good reasons, on a reputable platform, decided to assert that the ATA was largely funded by the cokes with very very flimsy evidence
1: yeah i mean it, it was it was a pretty poor article just for some background the the, the journalist who wrote it uh apparently is a, mul- a multi uh, walkley award-winning investigative journalist mm. and yet he didn't get our name right so he called us the australian taxpayers association not the australian taxpayers alliance Lucky mistake he then did a big expose on tim andrews our former executive director uh saying that he i think they said that he hadn't uh, a master of business from university he doesn't it's a different degree that he has uh and then they you know segued into oh well they're receiving quote unquote dark money from the Koch brothers based on essentially he had a look and saw that i think one of our direct you know one of our partners or someone like that at some point worked at an organization that at some point was you know associated with the Koch brothers it's it I don't like to use the term "fake news" too much, but that was like a clear-cut example of just fake news and hack journalism, as far as I'm concerned. Look,
2: what was interesting was he never directly says point blank that the ATA receives dark money, because that would be straight out false statement. Mm. And I think this Walkley Award-winning guy, you know, despite the horrible, stupid article he wrote, actually understands this. What he instead keeps, what he instead did was he titled his article "The Koch Brothers' Australian Friends." And then he keeps mentioning links between groups that have nothing to do with us, but which we worked with in the past, saying they've received some of the scope money. Uh, and then he just mentions our name. And he keeps using this sort of refrain saying it is rather adroit or clever. Um, so it's a bit, I mean, so he understands that he's, you know, making an insinuation that is completely unsubstantiated. Well, it, it, was, <laughs> it, it was
1: more so just that it was very, like, InfoWars, Alex Jones-esque, <laughs> right? It was like, it was like... I don't know if it, people remember, but when Glenn Beck had that outrageously stupid show on Fox News, and he would, like, draw on a whiteboard to do these connections between... Like, that's what a came said to me. Like, it was just... It was madness.
0: Well, that's what I meant when I said that the, the, the connections were so out there. It was like, yeah. he worked for a company when he was in university that the Cokes, like, gave money to several years after he worked there. And he had dinner with a person that the Cokes know. Like, coincidence... Yeah. it was it was really really some terrible terrible journalism. Yeah. But what seems curious to me is that it took some it took some browbeating before they decided to come out with any corrections, correct?
1: That, and they didn't actually give us a right to reply. So we wanted to write a response, which was like actually this is how our organization functions and this is how we're funded. Mm. Uh, we didn't even get that.
3: And by the way, this is our name.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like also you got our name wrong. So they, they corrected that eventually after oh. we basically mocked them on social media VPL- and were like, at the very least, get our name right.
2: The other thing is, uh, you know, if you're going to push crackpot conspiracy theories, then at least have some understanding of the conspiracy theory in question. Because mm. you know, people have accused the Koch brothers of uh, funding uh, certain pro-liberty causes in the past and they've said this is a bad thing. Uh, but, but it's important to remember that uh, there are two specific Koch brothers who have a philanthropic interests in supporting pro-liberty causes. There was a third brother, I think Fred Koch, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who spends his money on art collections, as I understand it. Now, this uh, so-called journalist uh, referred to him and one of the other brothers, so he couldn't even get his conspiracy theory correct. One of them is dead.
1: Well, uh, so, well, so, so, so uh, there's Fred, ha- uh, Fred Koch, mm. who I believe died in 1967. I believe he's the father of the Koch brothers. Uh, and he was saying that we were funded by Fred Koch, but that could be Frederick Koch, which is the son. However, a quick Google search suggests that Fred Koch is a rare book collector. So I'm happy to take money from someone who likes books. Sure. If, he, if, if, if someone who likes rare books also thinks that the government is over, you know, burdensome and wants to donate some money, awesome. So far, that guy hasn't, but...
2: We would never receive any donations from someone who sports Kindle um you know we have to draw the line somewhere
0: <laughs> but so what was this journalists name again just for... uh, Neil Chenowith. Neil Chenoweth. and any response from him or was this just the no the it was just it, it to to
1: be honest to me it, it was actually a really good example of like the decline of standard mm. of standard journalism and standard media because we have a journalist who from my understanding is well respected who puts out a piece that is
0: not based in any form of reality Mm. um and then no response so yeah i mean that's probably the main takeaway but uh, since we're on the subject of incompetence and stupidity and being regarded highly with no merit let's talk about the government (laughs) and (laughs) so specifically the laws that they've created around vaping talking earlier about the fact that you're basically running the, the movement in Australia, or at least leading it to get vaping legalized. And the reasons for not having it legalized are fragile at best. And so we have vaping, which seems to be the currently the best viable alternative to smoking, and is actually getting people off, uh, off of smoking. Uh, but the government of Australia thinks that a better solution is to encourage people to pour milk correct so uh let's go going- pour milk
1: and rearrange their furniture uh look just uh, i think i might just backtrack so just as a mm. bit of background there might be people that don't <coughs> really understand what vaping is mm. uh vaping is essentially a way to heat a liquid uh which often contains nicotine uh that creates a vapor or a steam you then inhale that it mimics the act of smoking but because you're not burning a cigarette you don't get the carcinogens and the tar at the same levels that you do from traditional tobacco products. So it's at least 95% less harmful than, than tobacco products. Um, despite that in Australia, it's illegal to vape with nicotine because it's illegal to possess it in every state and territory. For some reason you can vape without nicotine. So the government's fine with you actually heating up a liquid and inhaling it and mimicking the act of smoking, just not in any way that'll help you quit cigarettes.
0: They're fine with it, but they're not, that fine with it right I mean the way in which in which people can even present to you a vape at a vape shop is a little bit absurd the way in which they they kind of regulate the stores themselves is pretty is pretty ridiculous as well does anyone want to talk to that a bit
1: yeah look I'll run through the the bureaucratic mess that is Australian vaping law so we have a federal and state governments Uh, The federal government basically states if you want to vape and you want to vape with nicotine, that's totally fine. However, you cannot buy it in Australia. You can only buy it from overseas, which means you buy it online. You must get a prescription from a doctor, which nobody can get because doctors don't know how to prescribe it. Uh, And then you can only get a three-month supply. That's what the federal law says. So vapers rely on the federal law to buy their products overseas. Once they buy those products, every state and territory law says if you possess nicotine liquid, Uh, It's actually illegal to possess that, and you can face fines or even imprisonment, depending on what state or territory you're in. Uh, In WA, the fines up to $45,000. In the ACT, imprisonment is up to two years. Mm. But it's unenforceable because police would have to go around testing the liquids. The flow-on effect is what you highlighted, which is that vape shops that exist here that sell non-nicotine vaping liquids and sell vapes cannot sell the nicotine. So they set up shops in countries where they can, like New Zealand, and then just ship it in anyway. It's, it is honestly the possibly one of the dumbest regulations and dumbest set of laws that I can possibly point to at this moment. It is ridiculous. Mm.
2: Yeah, look, the, the other thing is, uh, you know, sometimes people will say to us, I just ordered my nicotine from New Zealand. I don't see the point in changing the laws because I'm able to receive the nicotine somehow. Mm. Uh, but the issue is, if you're a smoker who's trying to quit... And you're looking for some way out. Now, you can go down to your local convenience store, get a pack of cigarettes, destroy your lungs, you know, have a yarn and and leave the tobacco in the shop. Um, But, you know, to actually access a safe, proven safer alternative that is going to improve your health Mm. is much more difficult. We want to see these things sold as consumer products, which are just as easy to access as those cigarettes that are going to kill you.
3: And admittedly, the government is benefiting quite a bit from the sale of cigarettes mm. through the tobacco excise tax. tax.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, I think that's actually a good segue into excise, which is related to uh, this whole vaping issue, is that in order to get Australians to reduce their smoking rates, we introduce plain packaging laws, mm. we put big, ugly images of like dying people and gangrenous feet <laughs> on cigarette packs... We taxed cigarettes to the point that they're the most expensive cigarettes in the world. Uh, they increase by, like, 12.5% every yep. every single year, uh, and it's compounded. So, that just the price just goes up and up and up and up and up to the point that, like, you know, a pack of cigarettes can cost $40
0: or more. Uh, what percentage of that is tax, by the way?
1: Uh, so, as an example, like, if you bought it, Off the top of my head, if you bought a pack of cigarettes that cost you 35 bucks, about $30 of it is tax. So, the government's making a lot of money out of this. Mm. Uh, and they say, well, it's, it's in order to cover the healthcare cost of smokers who end up with lung cancer and all kinds of debilitating illnesses, which sounds fair enough until you actually look at the numbers and then you realize that it's about, it's about for every dollar that a smoker takes out of the healthcare system, they're paying like 10 to $15 in tax. So they're subsidizing the healthcare system and they're helping plug you know, the budget black hole. And we've been telling them for years, quit smoking a new product comes along, vaping, which is helping people quit smoking in New Zealand, in America, in Canada, the UK, and we turn around and go, oh no, not like that. You can't do that. And, and you could potentially face a fine. And j- just pour milk. Just pour milk and rearrange your furniture. Yeah, if, if, if you go to the Quit Victoria website and, <laughs> and uh, look at their tips on how to quit, some of the tips include pouring a glass of milk instead of smoking. I think one of them said something about
2: singing in the shower. And doing a dance.
1: Doing a dance. You're kidding me. Yeah. No, you can do it. I'll send you the link. You can you can put it in your post. It's, it's- <laughs> yeah, and
2: this isn't some moron who's writing a satirical blog post for Batusa no, okay. Advocate. This is a taxpayer-funded uh, NGO. I believe mm. they've gotten government grants, if I'm not mistaken, mm. or they're government-funded themselves, whatever the case might be. Uh, and it's really absolutely shameful because what you're doing is you're shaking down people who are suffering from an addiction mm. they cannot quit, these are people, smokers, who are more likely to be poor, more likely to be, you know, doing what they're doing uh, as relief from mental health issues in their own life. Um, and it's a regressive tax. It hurts the poor more than the rich. The poor struggle to quit more. Mm. And they're denying them a proven safer alternative while they take more of their money. It's
0: actually not just irrational. It's actually unethical. It seems a lot of the advocates for the plain packaging and for the taxes just have a superficial understanding of both psychology and economics which is to say if it costs a lot of money they won't do it and if we put gross things in front they'll have a, a psychological reaction to put them off of cigarettes when the data shows that they're wrong they don't seem to want to absorb that very well the the data
1: shows they were right up until a point so mm. there were there was a portion of Australians oh look When you meet a smoker, it's very rare that you meet a smoker that goes, I love this, this is awesome. Every smoker I ever meet is going to quit. Every smoker I ever meet is trying to cut down. So there was a portion of Australians that were susceptible to some plain packaging laws and some government ads and, you know, some taxes and stuff that went, oh, you know what? It's all getting too expensive and now it's a pain in the ass. I'm not going to smoke anymore. But we're at about 12 13% of smokers who are left and they're not quitting. It doesn't matter how expensive cigarettes get, they'll buy illegal cigarettes. And now we see an illicit trade on tobacco and the money from that is like funding ISIS and supporting, you know, crime gangs overseas. So health bureaucrats have gone, well we'll just raise the price of cigarettes and that will just get everyone off. Okay, and now they buy illicit trade tobacco and a, you know, bunch of terrorists in the Middle East benefit. Awesome.
2: With uh, plain packaging, um, the government has actually obfuscated and distorted a lot of their own evidence to try and arrive at the conclusion that this package, so this policy has not been a complete failure when all the evidence points out that it has. One of the perverse unintended consequences uh, is that it replaced competition based on branding with competition based on price. So what you've seen happen is the market share of cheaper tobacco brands as well as illicit or contraband tobacco went up massively because people no longer care as much what brand of cigarette they smoke. Mm. Um, so it isn't getting people off smoking. It's just switching them to cheaper tobacco um, to the point where the black market now is such a big and powerful thing uh, that they have now have to spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year on black market task forces to recover some of that uh, money. Mm. Um, and you know, meanwhile, they're passing rules such as banning the import of tobacco products through the mail stream. Now, these are typically products like cigars, for example, which people, you know, smoke less because of their addiction and more as a way to sort of, you know, uh, enjoy a cigar. You couldn't even smoke one every day if you wanted to. Uh, So they're just completely having the wrong solution for these issues and then trying to jump
0: over themselves to justify it. Well, yeah, it sounds like you're saying that uh, government bureaucrats are having a hard time being dynamic and absorbing evidence, which is obviously shocking to to anyone with any knowledge of government, uh, but yes, I really want to say something.
1: Well, I mean, I don't mean to bang on about you know the the tobacco issue, but it's because mm. it couples in with with vaping, which is what we we're talking about before. And it's I, I just really want to drive that point home. Bureaucrats have wanted to get people off cigarettes for the right reasons. Like I firmly believe, um, you know, all of these anti-tobacco campaigners have their hearts in the right place. Mm. Absolutely, but. Usually when you do something, if it's not working, you try something else. And they've got to a point where they just won't do that. And, and and you've got a quarter of a million vapors who are buying their products from overseas. So it's benefiting overseas companies. They're bringing it in here. They've managed to quit. But you've created a barrier to entry for other
0: smokers that don't want to try and make that switch. So here's, here's a point that a lot of people disagree on. And I'm not sure where I'll add on it. So I'd, I'd like to hear what you think. Is it that they're just kind of addicted to the money now? I've, heard, I've uh, heard on both sides of it. Some people say, yes, absolutely, they're making too much money. They don't want people to quit at this point. And other people saying it's just a failure of policy. So which, which is it? Or both?
2: Look, there's, there's, there's very good economic theory that if there's an inelastic product, which mm-hmm. people are willing to pay a higher price for, then it actually is a good thing to tax. Uh, because at the end of the day, you're taxing something that people are willing to cop. And that's funding, helping fund the
0: rest of the people. So there was
2: some good theory behind so for, this. So
0: for, for context, when you're talking about an inelastic good, you're talking about something where you can dramatically raise the price and there's such demand for it that, uh, well, that people will continue to consume,
1: to consume it. If you're addicted to a product and not consuming that product causes you to get frustrated at work and not be able to concentrate and things like that mm. um, and have all kinds of issues that people have from you know withdrawing from cigarettes, you're probably going to pay whatever the government tells you to pay for it. Um, so... Look, I mean, it, it's a bit conspiracy theorist. I like to. Th- I I know a lot of politicians. As as much as people like to say that politicians are all you know evil goblins and this and the mm-hmm. other, um, most of them are actually good people. I like to think that politicians aren't you know upholding the current policy in order to just line you know the budget black hole. Um, I think it's more so that bureaucracies. very averse to change especially when they've set up policies that have failed it's very hard for them to then turn around and go hey so all that money you gave us to do all of these things we really messed all of it up and we were wrong but let us keep our jobs but let us keep our jobs and don't (laughs) defund us like it it just doesn't work that way so i think Mm -hmm. it's more so you're in that bureaucratic cycle and politicians are too scared to go against the bureaucrats in this country
0: yeah well um did you want to say something? I was going to say,
3: yeah, and it's also very hard for governments to like stop a source of funding. Yeah. Um, and it is not for like bad reasons. It's like, oh, we've got all these programs that are really good that we're using this money for. It's not popular hmm. to vote against that because you're voting against this, that, and the other thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I think uh, we've left our viewer uh, a lot of things to think about. So uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off. But thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to Atapod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. If you care to know more about the ATA, visit their website, www.taxpayers.org, where you'll be able to see their mission statement, their projects, campaigns, objectives, and so much more. Remember, listening to the podcast is free, but creating it isn't. If you'd like to continue to see the Australian Taxpayers Alliance Advocacy, please consider becoming a member or donating. You can do this on their website as well. This has been Adipod. We'll see you next time.